All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, as I was walking up, Tom over here told me to go get him. So I guess I'm going to go get him this morning. Um, but before we do that, we're going to dive into John 15 and 16 in just a minute. But before we do that, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for um, the chance we've had to gather together already this morning. God, thank you for the way we've been able to worship. Thank you for the way that we've been able to celebrate. Uh, God, thank you for the joy that was in this room just a moment ago uh, as we all sang together and worshiped together. And God, I pray now that as we dive into your word for the next few minutes and uh, see what you have for us, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds, that we would hear from you. God, that our hearts and minds would be prepared to hear what you have for us. God, I recognize that what I have to say this morning probably doesn't matter a whole lot. But God, what you would say, what you would speak to our hearts and minds, God, that is of utmost importance. And so we pray that we would hear those things. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to draw us to you. God, that you would create in us a, a longing to abide with you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the way he unites us. Thank you for the fact that we can gather around our uh, gather around the name of our Savior this morning. And Holy Father, it's in the name of our Savior Jesus that I pray. Amen. We got a lot to cover today, a lot of verses. Um, we're going to look at the end of John chapter 15 uh, before spending the majority of our time at the beginning of John chapter 16. But before we get into that, let me ask you this question. Do you know what it's like to live in two different worlds? For those of us who maybe uh, went to school outside of our homes when we were growing up, we sort of grew up in two different worlds. Uh, the world of our homes, where we spoke a certain way and behaved a certain way and talked a certain way and ate a certain way and sort of followed the family routines. And then the world of school, where we probably spoke different, acted differently, just sort of lived differently than we probably did at home. I know that experience was true for me. And we were probably pretty embarrassed at times when those worlds would collide, when our parents would come to school, or when our parents observed us acting differently and speaking differently and being different people around our friends. The point being, many of us probably have some kind of experience of what it looks like or what it feels like when two different worlds collide. And then the final discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples throughout these uh, last few chapters in the book of John, that's what he's preparing his disciples for, right? His kingdom has arrived. His death and resurrection is imminent. He's about to be enthroned through his death and resurrection. It's going, um, once his death and resurrection happens, Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower um, Jesus' disciples, and the world that the, these disciples have come to inhabit, the, the kingdom of Jesus, if you will, well, that world is about to clash with the powers of the world that have, lined, that have aligned themselves up against Jesus. When that clash happens, when those worlds collide, Jesus wants his disciples to be ready because things are going to change greatly, very quickly. It's going to get crazy. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples for that coming time 
in these last few chapters. But John 15, verses 18 through 27, says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated me and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Just a couple of things I'll point out. Jesus tells his disciples that the world is going to hate them just like it does Jesus. And in this text, uh, world here refers not to the created order of things, but to the systems of this uh, world that have lined up in rebellion against God. The, uh, the powers and principalities of the world that have lined up in opposition to Jesus. Right? It's not that every person who exists will hate Jesus' followers. It's not that creation itself will hate Jesus' followers. It's that those who align themselves with those systems of rebellion against God's will will hate Jesus' followers. Jesus tells his disciples that they should not be surprised when the world hates them for following him because they hated Jesus first. If they hated Jesus and then loved his followers who looked like Jesus and acted like Jesus and loved like Jesus, then his followers would be greater than Jesus. But since the servants are not greater than the master, the world's hatred of him guarantees it will hate his followers. Now with that said, I want to frame this idea of persecution correctly because we Christians in the West often misinterpret what persecution is, especially on a global scale. I want us to make sure that we have the right perspective on what Jesus is talking about because in just a moment, Jesus will come back to this and start talking about how uh, people are going to die for following Christ. There are a lot of believers in the U.S. right now who seem to have this idea that Christianity here is being attacked in the way that Jesus is talking about here. And I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, certain political movements in the West use this fear to manipulate people for their own purposes rather than for the purposes of Jesus that they claim. Right, there's a difference between active persecution and having people around you who disagree with you on moral issues or political issues. Like right now this morning in Augusta, there are thousands and thousands of people meeting in hundreds and hundreds of churches across our city with nothing or no one standing in their way of doing so. Every other 
Tuesday, when the Augusta Commission holds a commission meeting, they invite local pastors from across the area to open their meetings with prayer. Our local governing body literally begins their meetings with prayer every other week. Meanwhile, today in places like Iran, certain places in Africa, there will likely be believers arrested or even killed for their faith. That's the kind of persecution that Jesus is warning about. And I want us to zoom out a bit globally when we think about what Jesus is talking about to make sure that we have the right perspective. Because right now, we have brothers and sisters across the world in danger of arrest and death for doing what we are doing together this morning. Right? Not in danger of being disagreed with, not in danger of someone holding a different political opinion, right? Not in danger of, of losing perceived power and influence, but in danger of arrest and death for doing what we're doing this morning. And that's what Jesus is talking to his followers about. We don't have that same experience in the West that Jesus is talking about here, but his followers certainly were about to experience that in a whole new way. Moving on from there, notice how Jesus also once again promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to his followers in order to help them in this time of coming persecution when these worlds will collide. It's a recurring theme in these chapters, right? From, John, from the end of chapter 13 on, it's a recurring theme. And verses 26 and 27, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Right? Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you, he's going to bear witness about me, and then you, you will bear witness about me into the world. Hold on to that because it shows up again in the next few verses that we're going to dive into. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. I'll read them, and they'll be up here as well. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I have told you, that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you ask me where are you going. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever he hears, he will speak, 
and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. There's a lot of verses. And just like there were uh, just a couple of things I pointed out from the first, that last section of John chapter 15, I'll just point out three things from this uh, 15 verses at the beginning of John chapter 16. First, once again, Jesus is telling his disciples what they will soon face in order to keep them from losing faith when they do encounter some pretty difficult times. He was forewarning them of the dangers of discipleship that are about to come their way, right? And, and he references the fact that they will be put out of the synagogue, those who opposed the early Christians who were, right, primarily Jewish, both the early Christians and those who opposed them. Um, and, and, and those who opposed them would excommunicate them from the synagogue, meaning that they would be cut off from community and family and friends. Jesus told of a time when some people's values would be so far off that they would even kill believers and think that they were doing the right thing. And it wasn't so long after this, not so long after the day of Pentecost, that Saul of Tarsus, who eventually becomes Paul, would be involved in causing the persecution and death of many Christians, including the stoning of Stephen that we see happen in the first several chapters of Acts. That's what Jesus is preparing them for. In verse 7, Jesus says that he is going away, and this is the second thing, and that's to their advantage, because if he goes the way, then the Holy Spirit will come to them. I want to be clear, though, what Jesus means when he talks about um, going away, when he says that in order for the advocate to come, that he has to leave. Uh, the words about going away here do not simply refer to the physical departure of Jesus when he later ascends to the Father. He is talking specifically about his impending death. This is primarily a reference to his uh, arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. And the reason why the Holy Spirit can't come until Jesus goes away isn't because there is some logical objection or physical obstacle why they can't both be present. Rather, the reason is that according to God's promise and plan, the blessing of the Spirit's indwelling presence is dependent on Christ making full and final atonement for our sins. Therefore, it's to their advantage that Christ goes away because in doing so, He defeats our greatest enemies and in doing so, He will offer Himself in our place on the cross. And in doing so, He makes a way for us to be reconciled with God the Father and then the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in the lives of Jesus' followers, of those who believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit fills God's people with his indwelling uh, spirit and constantly acts on our behalf as our advocate. The third thing to notice is in verses 7 through 11, there's another promise about the Holy Spirit that we haven't really seen yet. Let me read those verses again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. In John 14 and 15, when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we talked about the Holy Spirit being our legal advocate, a a legal representative who stands beside us and calls out or speaks out on our behalf. But that same sort of legal motif um, extends into John 16, except here, the Holy Spirit is now taking on the role of something similar to uh, a prosecuting attorney. We should see verse 8 to mean that the Holy Spirit is going to expose to the world and bring to light to the world what sin and righteousness and judgment really are. And just a point of clarification, righteousness and justice are words that can be interchangeable here. But he will bring out into open the true meaning of sin and righteousness or justice and judgment. In some ways, the Holy Spirit will speak truth to the systems of power that have lined themselves up against God and against Jesus. Those systems of power that are about to be judged and sentenced by Jesus' overwhelming victory that is about to happen through the cross and the resurrection. But as John talks about the Holy Spirit exposing sin and righteousness and judgment, I want to point out a couple of nuances here that I think are important to properly understanding um, what might be a little confusing in this passage. Notice this about sin in verse 9. Sin is defined here not by a lack of moral obedience, but by a lack of belief. Sin is not just about a laundry list of do's and don'ts, according to verse 9. Sin is about failing to be who God created you to be. If God created you to be a person in right relationship with Him, if God created humanity um, to be followers of God, to be worshipers of God, um, then those who do not believe in God are the ones in sin, right? N.T. Wright calls this failing to be human. If we as humans were created to worship God and we're not doing so, then we're failing to be human. We're failing to be who God created us to be, people in right relationship with God. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The key indicator there being belief, right? Notice this about verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The world assumed, and the the powers of the world that lined up against Jesus assumed that Jesus' death was his defeat, The reality of the world that we live in is that justice can be and often is bent towards the will of the powerful. But Jesus, in setting the world to rights by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, well, Jesus bends justice back. The Holy Spirit is going to reveal how Jesus' death demonstrates the rightness of God because his death and departure are victory and the completion of his work. Jesus is vindicated. 
His resurrection has proven that his enemies were wrong. Death couldn't contain Jesus. The powers of this world lost. It wasn't that Jesus was unrighteous. It was that those who lined themselves up in foolish attempts to defeat Jesus were shown as unrighteous and unjust. Through that, their unrighteousness was exposed. And Jesus sets things as they should be and makes a way for God's people to be redeemed, to be in right relationship with Him, and eventually for the entire world to be redeemed and reconciled. Finally, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. God has a different standard of justice than the world. The world's judgment is often flawed, but God's judgment is not. And Jesus' life and death, the ruler of this world, the powers of evil, they are judged. In Jesus' life and death, evil is shown to be powerless before God. The powers of this world tried to do their utmost to Jesus, but that just resulted in Jesus' victory over them. And this Holy Spirit will now proclaim that Jesus is Lord and the powers of this world do not hold sway. Now, in light of all that, in light of all of those things about the passage, there are two things I want us to reflect on or take away from this passage. And the first is this. In verse 7, Jesus says that the helper will come to you. And then immediately afterwards in verse 8, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is going to come to you, to us, and then the Holy Spirit will expose the world. The Holy Spirit is coming to you, and then the world will be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Part of what we need to see here, part of what's happening here, is that Jesus is commissioning his disciples to action. You see, the Holy Spirit's not going to do what is happening here in a disembodied way. The Holy Spirit is not going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment in a disembodied way. The purpose, listen, track with me on this one. The purpose of a fireplace is to contain something that is otherwise dangerous. It's a way to control something powerful. And if we think that the purpose of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is only to enable our private spirituality with God then we might be guilty of trying to keep the Holy Spirit in a fireplace. Chapter 14, Jesus was certainly concerned about comforting his disciples with the idea that an advocate was coming to them, to be with them, to comfort them, to be beside them. He repeatedly told them not to let their hearts be troubled, that he was sending them a helper and an advocate. It's a deeply personal promise. But here, in chapter 16, the focus changes a bit, to be about God working through Jesus' followers, the church, to do the things that he's saying. The Holy Spirit's going to come to you, and then the world is going to be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the church, through the followers of Christ, through Christ's disciples. Maybe the best way to understand what Jesus is talking about here is to recognize that Jesus is telling his followers that they will soon find themselves 
in the same position that Jesus is now in. Worlds are about to collide. Part of the point of John 16 is for Jesus to prepare us for that collision. It's tempting to hear these words and to imagine that we are merely to be flies on the wall, spectators in this great cosmic struggle as the Holy Spirit goes about His work. But we would be wrong to think that. The Spirit is given to God's believers, to followers, so that God's work may be done through us. God intends that the Spirit will declare that the world is in the wrong. But it is we who in the power of the Spirit will make that declaration. We are the people who will declare to the world that failure to believe in Jesus is a failure to be truly human. A failure to be who God created us to be. We are the people who will declare that heaven and earth have met at the cross that rather than heaven and earth being two distinct spheres that should never intersect, that instead Jesus has set the world to rights, that Jesus has rightly ordered things, that Jesus has bent the rod of justice back straight, that Jesus has once again made a way for things to be as they should be. Jesus has made a way for heaven and earth to meet at the cross. We are the people who declare that Jesus has already judged the powers of the world, that Jesus has already won a great victory, that we need not face judgment Because Jesus was judged in our place, even as he judged the rulers and powers of this world. Part of what's happening in John 16 here is a commission. The Holy Spirit's coming to you, and you're being commissioned, my disciples, to be about the purposes of God. But here's the second thing to reflect on is that even though the Holy Spirit is going to work through God's people to accomplish His purposes, the goal for us is not to accomplish God's purposes. The goal for us is to abide in Jesus. Jesus has said that over and over in these uh, chapters that we've been moving through. Abide in me. The goal for us is to daily rely on the Holy Spirit and to stay connected to Jesus. Right? We're seeking to live in the Spirit because it's in the Spirit that we can continue to see Jesus rightly and find Him as the way and the truth and the life. We're seeking to live intentionally in, in the Spirit so as to become cognizant of our sin, of our failure to believe and trust by remembering that our flesh is weak and broken and deceitful, but the Spirit gives life. To learn what it means to live in a right relationship with God because God has made things right. To learn how to discern between things of the world and things of God. To know that the ruler of this world is already judged and defeated. So those ways are not lasting. Right? Overall, this idea that the Holy Spirit is going to accomplish God's purposes through God's followers, through people like the disciples, people like us who believe in Christ, should lead us to an even greater daily reliance on the Holy Spirit. We're not going to accomplish the purposes of the Holy Spirit, the purposes of God, by creating huge social media presences where we fight culture wars 
and lambast our society for being anti-God and tell everyone our opinions about every single topic. We're not going to accomplish the purposes of the Holy Spirit by lining up within our doctrinal camps and calling the people in other camps heretics. We're not going to accomplish the purposes of the Holy Spirit by aligning ourselves with the political movements of this world that are doomed to fail. We're only going to fulfill what God has for us as we, us as individuals, us as the church, us as a body of believers, as we seek to live intentionally by abiding in Jesus. And what I mean by abiding is this. It's receiving and trusting all that God has for us in Christ. Abiding in Jesus is essentially a reliance on Jesus for all things. An attachment to Jesus, a coming to Jesus, a receiving from Jesus. Right? It's trusting in Jesus, remaining in fellowship with Jesus, connecting to Jesus so that our life flows from him. Right? That's the call, to abide, to believe, to trust, to rest, to receive. That's the call. And if we're doing those things, if we are first abiding, then God will certainly use us as believers to accomplish his purposes and will commission us to very specific things, perhaps. But the call is to abide and to believe and to trust and to rest and to receive. Not to do, to abide. Let me just finish with this clarification. The fruit of abiding is what Jesus said in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The reality of the fact is that we're not really great at loving and putting other people's interests above our own. Our sin often keeps us from loving well and it often divides us. But the Holy Spirit teaches us to abide in Jesus' love and then transforms us to love like he does so that when we love one another, this is how people see Jesus. Right? The, the call for action this morning is not to be anxious about what we might be doing for Jesus or aren't doing for Jesus. The call this morning is intended to push us back into what Jesus has been saying, abide in me. Learn to walk in the Holy Spirit. Let him do the work of reminding you of his great love for you and his great love for others and his great love for the world. Right? Stay in tune and trust that the Holy Spirit will continue to bear fruit in you and accomplish his purposes through you even as you abide in him. Right? So, so for us as a church during this Lenten season, uh, I would encourage you to continue to lean into our joint practices the places where we meet Jesus and spend time with him through prayer and reading God's word and journaling and meeting together as missional communities and all those other things that we're doing right now, fasting, whatever it might be. And as we meet Jesus, let's be reminded of who he is and what he does and who that makes us. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit will change us to do what the Holy Spirit wants to work through us, right? Ultimately, the Holy Spirit will accomplish what he wants to accomplish through us, whatever that looks like in the world as we serve and love and do those things. But first, we've got to abide. We've got to be connected. We've got to be joined 
to Jesus. The being is going to precede the doing. And we certainly want the doing to happen. We want the world to know about Jesus. We want to invite people into the family of God. We want, to know, we want people to know that they are loved deeply by Jesus. But the way we get there is by first abiding in Christ. And that's the call this morning for us as a body of believers and as individuals. As we enter into a time of response, I would encourage you to maybe reflect on what it looks like to abide in Christ. Maybe you need to take a moment, think about that, pray about that, reflect on that, whatever that means. I would encourage you to do that. But as we continue uh, to respond There are a couple of ways, uh, a couple of other things that we can do. There's a giving basket in the back for those of you who are connected to redemption and uh, want to um, continue your worship by giving. Many of us maybe give online or in other ways, but at least now is the time to be reminded that our giving is worship as well. The band's going to come back up and lead us in some songs in a second and give us um, the option or the opportunity to to worship through singing. And then we also have the... um, We also have a time to respond by taking communion. Every Sunday at Redemption, we take communion in order to um, remember what Christ has done for us and jointly proclaim to one another that we believe it. So if you're here, whether you're a member of Redemption Church or not, I would invite you uh, to come and take communion if God gives you the freedom to do so. If you can, remember what Christ has done. If you can, proclaim that it's true. Come and take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on from there. Holy Father, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you for the uh, amazing gift that you've given us through Christ. Someone who acted on our behalf even when we could not. God, thank you that you've made a way for us to be rightly related to you, to be connected to you, to know you, to live with you, to abide with you. God, I pray that as we continue this time of response, this time of worship, God, that you would continue to be active in our hearts and minds to draw us to yourself. God, I pray that you would create in us that longing and that desire to be connected to you, to know you, to constantly be connected to you. God, I pray even now as we close our time together and Jesus would continue to be lifted high in this place and that we would be drawn to you because of Christ. God, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.